0: Welcome to Equipping Hour. I'm going to open us in prayer and then get going, introducing our new series and today's class. Father God in heaven, we thank you for gathering us as your church. We thank you for Christ and his gospel, the way that you have sent him to reveal you to us in his incarnation, and the way that you have sent him to accomplish redemption through his cross and resurrection. And through him, you've brought us into an eternal kingdom where you've already supplied us every spiritual blessing. And you uh, will bring us into the fullness of the new creation where we'll have no lack. We'll have no unmet needs. But even now, you're so kind and generous to pour out temporal, material blessings on us. But um, we need hearts that learn contentment. You know that in our hearts we're still so prone to discouragement, so prone to grumbling and despondency and thanklessness. So we pray for this series that you would be shepherding our hearts toward contentment and thankfulness, that we would see rightly how blessed we are in Christ and that we would be a people characterized by this quality as we walk in your spirit. So please help us in this series. Help me to teach with clarity and faithfulness. Help all of us to hear with open ears and soft hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are beginning today a 10-part series on Christian contentment. And the text that's really the backbone of our course, we're going to be following this, is a Puritan classic by a guy named Jeremiah Burrows called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you want to get the fullest experience as we walk through this course, I recommend buying this, uh, the Banner of Truth paperback, and you can read it as we go. Now, Puritan writing can be a little bit difficult for those who are less sure footed as readers. Among other Puritan authors, I think Burroughs is on the easier side, which is good. But um, in any case, even if you don't or can't read along, If you attend the classes through this series, I think you'll get substantially the content of the book. But we're dealing with this quality, as it's taught in the Bible, of Christian contentment. So to sort of get the juices flowing, to get the gears in our brains turning, I want to present to you a thought exercise. And that is, especially if you have like a notebook where you can write notes, we have our our handout. Did everyone get a handout on the way in? You can write your notes, but I know that you're going to throw that away sometime within the next 10 weeks. So if you have like a, somewhere a little bit more permanent, or maybe you'll put it in there and just keep it, put it on a plaque and put it on your wall, your, your handout. But I want you to write answers to these questions that you can reference later toward the end of the course. We'll try to return to these later. But the first one is, as you think of various Christian virtues, that is the qualities that the Holy Spirit is producing in us as we grow in faith in Christ, Think about various virtues. How are you doing in contentment? If one is the, the area where you struggle the most, and if ten is the virtue that you're rocking, you're doing really well, <laughs> we would probably, none of us would say there's any tens, but if that's the scale, where is contentment for you? Is it an area where you particularly feel the burn, you feel the struggle, maybe it's a lower number, or do you feel like, I actually think that's, I'm doing pretty well here. That would be a higher number. So, Give it it a second of thought. Rate yourself 1 to 10 on contentment. And then think about the second question. What are two or three areas of your life where you are especially prone to discontentment? Now, of course, I'm using this term. We're going to define it in a moment, but you probably have some sense of what contentment is. What are two or three areas of your life where you struggle the most with this? It could be something more general like money, or it could be, be helpful if you're pretty specific like, my spouse's poor communication. Something like that. What are the areas where you find contentment to be most of a struggle for you? So I'll give you a little bit of time to ponder and write answers. And I want everyone, we're all going to take turns sharing our answers. No, I'm, I'm, I am kidding about that now. Um, good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, we, uh, however, it could be a good exercise with a trusted friend, a spouse, a uh, um, an accountability partner to share some of these answers. I wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage that. But um, in this series, we're going to learn what Christian contentment is, what makes it uniquely Christian, uh, what makes it so excellent and beautiful, what and what makes us desire it, what stands in its way, what are the barriers to contentment, and then how to grow in it. These are some of the things that Burroughs covers in his book that we'll go through in this course. Um, but why focus on contentment? Well, our author Burroughs, early on he contends that contentment is this kind of virtue of virtues, It's kind of a meta-virtue that lumps together so many other of, of the spiritual fruits that God means to produce in our lives. He calls it the very life and soul of all practical divinity. That's an amazing statement, the life and soul of practical divinity, meaning the knowledge of God. It's an indicator of how proficient we are in the school of Christ. It's one of the strongest measures of our spiritual health. And um, he also goes deeper, it's really interesting, he roots contentment in the character of God himself. So, we have in the, our doctrine of God, we have, sometimes we make these distinctions between the, what are called communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes is a super long word there, but can anyone tell us what are the communicable attributes? What does that mean versus the incommunicable attributes? You want to take a stab? Is that Rodney? I see a hand there. Who's going first? Okay, okay. Stacey, go for it.
1: Communicable, wait, <laughs> say the word. Communicable. Means they are qualities that we share yes with the Lord that are possible that we could do and in the word means things that only God around him
0: yes yes good so communicable are things he communicates to us we can be like god in being loving for instance or righteous but incommunicable as things that we he doesn't communicate to us like being omnipresent we aren't we aren't omnipresent we we don't grow in omnipresence as we uh walk through the Christian life, but we should be growing in love and righteousness and everything. So yes, one of God's incommunicable attributes is his self-sufficiency, or another fancy word. And I'm not going <laughs> to drop a bunch of big theological words throughout this lesson, but just it, it's we, we at this part talking about God. His aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, it simply means he's self-sufficient. He has everything in himself, all being and blessing, in himself. He is the fountain of his own life. This is an amazing truth about God. He never has to go outside himself to supply any need. He never has to go outside of himself to be fulfilled, to be happy. I mean, just think about it. Everything that exists outside of him, he made in the first place. How could he uh, fill up some deficiency in himself from stuff that he himself made And so, even though self-sufficiency and aseity is one of the incommunicable attributes of God, we're never going to, you know, image Him in self-sufficiency, there is a certain way that we can imitate it by being fully supplied, not in ourselves, but in God. God wants us as His new creatures in Christ, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, to learn how to be fully supplied in God, just as God is fully supplied in God. He's brought us into union with Christ so that we're joined to the triune God as our spiritual supply. So you think of passages of scripture like John 15 where Jesus uses this image, I am the vine, you are the branches. And you just have this image that he uses of how all the supply comes from being grafted or being connected to the vine and that's how we bear fruit. That's how we have spiritual life. So contentment is a matter of being rooted in the self-sufficient God and finding all our sufficiency in him. It means a sort of internal satisfaction that doesn't come from outside uh, material things, from outside circumstances, but from union with God himself. And so from this perspective, we can start to see why it's not only a duty that we be content, but it is in fact the glory and excellence of a Christian. And to use the words of Burroughs, who wouldn't want to be content, to be supplied by God alone in our souls. So to introduce today, that's kind of an introduction of the whole course, the 10-week course, it'll take us into February. Regarding today's lesson, we're covering the first chapter of Burroughs' book, which is Christian contentment described. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at Paul's example of contentment in Philippians 4, which is really the key text of the whole book. And then what he does is he lays out a definition, a long definition of contentment. And then he just breaks it down. He goes uh, bit by bit kind of expanding on his definition. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a text that lays out contentment. We're going to look at Burroughs' definition. And then we're going to kind of break it apart and understand each bit. And I want to warn you at this point that this material can be a little bit overwhelming. And that's kind of the point. At the end of the chapter, Burroughs closes. He says, quote, the very telling you what the lesson of contentment is. Meaning my expanding on all this stuff that I'm about to say may cause you to lay your hands on your hearts and say, Lord, I see that there is more to Christian contentment than I thought there was. And I have been far from learning this lesson, end quote. So he says the the goal of, of understanding what it is, we're going to come away and go, wow, God, there's a lot to this and I'm pretty far from it. And that's a good thing. That would that be a good thing. We want to begin with a high and biblical view of contentment so that we can all understand how far we are truly from being complete in this area of Christian maturity. And the point isn't to condemn us because there's no condemnation in Christ for those who are trusting him. But we do want to set a biblical standard to which we're all growing and um, I am right there with you in needing to grow this this week. This week, I found myself grumbling over such profound afflictions as work meetings, waiting a long time in a traffic light uh, to, to, for a traffic light to change while I was running, um, a sick young child acting like a sick young child while being put to bed. I mean, horrible suffering, right? And in my heart, I found myself grumbling over some of these things. And I'm sure you can relate. Sometimes it's, there are many little things that can bring out a heart of discontentment. Or big things. Some of us are going through truly profound suffering. And there can be a battle with contentment as well. But reading this book and then preparing this study has really uh, been used by God to bring areas of discontentment to my attention. And I pray that it has the same effect on you. So let's grow together. As God gives us grace. let's. Um, any questions or thoughts about where we're going before we start looking at Philippians 4? Either the course or today's lesson. Alright, let's open to Philippians 4. We'll look at verses 11 to 13. Would someone read those verses please? Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Any volunteer? Uh, Matt Boyd, thank you. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Thank you. Now, does anyone know where Paul's writing from in Philippians? Prison. So he's in prison for the gospel. Um, he is thanking the Philippians for sending him a gift, a support gift. That's what he had just talked about. But in verse 11, he wants to clarify that the reason he's thankful is not because he was discontent in his neediness. He's saying, I, I'm not speaking of being in need as though I was discontent and, and um, unsupplied without your gift, even though your gift truly is helpful. And so um, he wants him to know, I don't ultimately depend on your gift, Why? Because I've learned the lesson of being content in every situation. And uh, Burroughs points out for us that this is the lesson Paul has learned. He has learned it. It's interesting, he says, I have learned the secret, in verse 12, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he calls it a secret. We're going to talk over the next two lessons, next week and the week after, Lord willing, about kind of this aspect of contentment as a mystery there's something uh, paradoxical there are tensions involved in contentment um, not to mention just sheer difficulty of it even aside from just the the, the mystery of understanding it there's this hard to do um, but verse 12 also he expands on what he said in verse 11 I have learned in whatever situation I am and then in verse 12 he expands on the kinds of situations he has learned to be content in any and every circumstance such as plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is a man, again, writing from prison. He knows the range of different conditions. But you get the impression that drastic fluctuations of condition don't do a lot to phase Paul. He can rest content no matter what. And verse 13 gives the power that lies behind the contentment. It is the strengthening grace of Christ. So this is a picture of what contentment looks like. So in this lesson, we're going to focus on what this godly contentment is. And uh, we're going to, of course, we're drawing from Paul's example, but we're really going to range throughout Scripture. There's a lot of uh, other supporting truths found throughout the Bible that will help us fill in this picture. So to give, to lay out the definition, it's in your handout. I actually mentioned this in last week's sermon, but it's long, so I, I printed it in your handout. It's this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in god's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition so there's a a lot there and burroughs says you you can tell there's a lot there let me uh break this down a little bit for you so there's actually nine qualities in this definition that we're going to break apart and just understand each one and uh what I would say we're doing here is we're we're just sealing off escape escape hatches, right? Because there so many ways we might think we're being content, and uh, and we realize that oh, mm, that's not really contentment. Um, as we we'll see this as we go. Um, there's a lot there's a lot to this definition because there's a lot of ways that we might um, that, that kind of sin wants to wiggle in and, and ruin our contentment. Um, I hope that becomes clear as as we move through this. So first, let's look at the first quality here. And that is, it is sweet and inward. Um, Psalm 61, verses 1 and 5, the psalmist says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. Now the next quality we're going to look at will be this idea of quietness or Silence. But at this point, what I want to bring out, what Burroughs brings out, is this idea of, it's my soul. The psalmist is talking to his soul and saying, soul, sit quietly before God. This is something that's happening internally. It's not just a matter of the mouth. Now this is, again, we might think, oh, if I can keep quiet verbally about my grumbling, then that's okay. Okay. Um, Some people can maintain a peaceable and quiet outward appearance, but inwardly, Burroughs says their spirits are like the raging sea, casting forth nothing but dirt and mire. And that's not contentment. True contentment goes all the way down to the heart, down to the soul. It's not just a matter of bottling up what you say or your outward expression. Because he he points this out, um, what he calls the common gifts and ordinary powers of man... Are often enough to produce that kind of outward calm. Non-believers can bottle up their, their raging kind of kind of bitterness and discontentment. Um, many non-believers, not all, but many non-believers, can keep a lid on expressing their inner turmoil. So, what's distinctly Christian about that? Simply uh, bottling up what the, the 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 raging sea of of disquiet in our hearts. And by the way, we're going to find this line of reasoning come up a lot in this book where Burroughs says there's this this, um, outward effect that you might think is contentment, but look, the flesh can produce that. Non-believers can do that. So he'll never let us rest in these sorts of merely outward effects because Christian contentment that Paul has learned is a matter of the Spirit's work. True Christian contentment is a, a matter of grace renewing us. So it's not just going to be what the world can do. Any thoughts or questions about this? And of course these are all gonna build on each other and kind of help interpret each other, but any thoughts or questions about this idea that it? it happens inside in the soul, it's not just a matter of our outward expression. Thoughts either to add to that or questions or challenges? Yeah, Smokey.
1: Just to... Yeah and I are going
0: from the Bible. Yeah, all the New Testament. It's really helpful. Yes, he does uh, more than I. A lot. By the way, I'm not giving you everything. He there's a lot that he does more than I can cite. Yeah, uses good biblical illustrations often as he goes through this stuff. A lot from the Old Testament. Puritans were were pretty good at that using biblical illustrations, really quick ones you're like, oh, that's that's a really good connection. Yeah. So that is the sweet inward quality. Secondly, which is B, and by the way, if you look at your handout, it's kind of—it's very outliny It's—it's very—it's—it's it's, uh, kind of detailed, right? But so, just so you can follow along, this is your point B, which is the second quality. It is a quiet of the heart. It's a quiet of the heart. We already alluded from Psalm sixty-two to this quietness, but it's a kind of resting before God, and this is where Burroughs. Just to help us avoid some confusion here, he provides some really helpful clarifications about what is and is not this sort of quietness before God. So, first of all, what is quietness of heart not opposed to? What are the sorts of things we might wrongly associate with contentment? So he gives us a list of a few things. First, it is a due sense of affliction. A due sense of affliction. Quietness of heart does not pretend that we're not hurting or suffering so if you're going through a, an affliction contentment and quietness of heart isn't denying reality and saying I'm fine, like that meme of the dog everything's burning behind me saying I'm fine, everything's fine you know, that's not contentment um, look at the psalmists. look at we just saw Psalm 62, 1 and 5 but look throughout the psalms, they're pouring out their anguish to God, they're, they're being very clear that things are not all right look at Jesus in the garden, like in Mark Fourteen. he is sweating drops of blood in great distress at the coming suffering. So, quietness of heart still can call a spade a spade and say, God, I'm hurting. Or say to oneself, I'm hurting, this is bad. Second thing that quietness of heart does not oppose is making orderly complaints to God and even to others. Sometimes a contented, quiet heart makes complaints to God. I would say often makes complaints to God. And sometimes even to other people. If it's done in the right way, there is a kind of complaining that evidences disquiet and discontentment, but not all complaints are sinful. So just as a thought exercise for us, what might be some of the work kind of Burroughs uses the term of orderly complaints is sort of the good kind. What might be some distinguishing marks of sinful grumbling versus godly complaints, either to God or even letting others know what we're going through and that we're hurting? What might be some of the the distinguishing factors between those two? Um, I, see, I see. I heard a voice that I want to share. Blame. Okay. So would it be like we're blaming God if our a complaint to God is one is one of a blaming of of Him? Yeah, that's good. That's that's a really helpful. So that would be a mark of a sinful complaint. Yeah, sure. Why me? Yeah, and why me? And why are you doing this? Yeah, and there could be a submitted way of going. Why are you doing this? Like, what is your purpose? I don't understand. But you mean that is more of a self pity? It sounds like like, why of all people did it have to be me? Kind of yeah. So a self pity could be, could be a part of that. Yeah, Annalee. Accusatory. Yeah. So. How could you, God? Like as though God is doing injustice. And this is bringing us back to Job. We saw uh, last equipping hour at the end of our Old Testament survey, accusing God of injustice. Those are all good, good signals of sinful complaint. Uh, Josh, you have another? Yeah. God has promised us right now. Yeah. So like with Daniel, when he's praying. Um, and he's like, "Hey, the the captivity should be about yeah. like, at an end." Like. Is this coming, God, kind of thing? Yeah. Versus like if it's something that God hasn't promised and we're completely... Yeah, very good. So are we expecting and calling God to account for his promises or are we expecting things that he hasn't promised? Things that we feel entitled to but he's never promised. He'll say later in this book a little nugget that has just really stuck with me. He says, don't promise yourself too much uh, as, a, as a guide toward contentment. And I think that's that's really helpful of... Um, yeah don't don't put too much on the list of what you're obligated what's what you're entitled to so that's a, a very good point yeah these are all, I, I think these are all very good answers and they're all basically different ways of getting at a softness or a hardness toward god there is a and we're going to get into s- submission in a moment here but there's sort of a hardening and going god it's not right what you're doing how could you and there could be blame accusation self-pity or there can be a softness that's just broken before him and going this hurts I need your help, what's going on? Just a, a, a genuine pain that's expressed to God. And again, to others, there can be, we can share that with others. Uh, as long as this, again, with a softness of heart yielded before God. Um, third, third thing that is not opposed to a quiet heart is seeking legitimate ways to better our condition. It's not wrong to try to fix a problem. It's not wrong to try to get out of suffering. Remember, uh, I, I cited Jesus in the garden in in Mark 14 Thirty six, what does he pray? Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I mean he prayed. Can can I have an can there be another way rather than the cross? Think of Paul in Second Corinthians twelve, eight. He he was afflicted by a thorn in his flesh, and what did he say? Three times I pleaded to the Lord to take it away, and he said no. And Paul accepted his answer. But he tried to get out, out of it, right? And, and those are prayers, but there could be other ways that we try to better our condition. That's not opposed to a quietness of heart. But then what is opposed to a quietness of heart? So, if those things aren't discontentment, what is, uh, what are some marks of a disquiet heart? Well, first is, it's a sort of sinful complaint to God we were just talking about. It's murmuring. It's bitter. It's disordered. It's passing judgment against God. And the classic biblical example of this is the wilderness generation in in Numbers in particular. Israel, after the Exodus, they were delivered out of Egypt by God and time after time in Numbers, they keep grumbling. Listen to Numbers uh, 14, 2 and 3. Listen to how they pass judgment against God, which amounts to rebellion. They say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they are accusing God. He's made the wrong choice. He brought us out here to die. This is not good for us. So they're making all kinds of assumptions and accusations against God. That is sinful, rebellious grumbling. That is not a quiet heart. A second mark that we don't have a quiet heart is a tumult of spirit that leads us to distraction and even to the point of failure of our duties. And we all, I think, probably know what this is like. There's some complaint or problem in our lives that's looming in our hearts. And as a result, we can't focus. And we can't get our mind off it. It's just spinning and spinning through our minds. And we can't get anything done that God's called us to do. There's good works he's put before us. Family relationships, work, ministry. And, and we're just so caught up in this problem. So caught up in this grumbling that we're distracted from what we ought to be doing. Uh, your mind is a complete jumble of worry. This is not the quiet heart of Christian contentment. That could be an indicator to us that not all is not right. Third indicator of an unquiet heart is what Burroughs calls sinking discouragements. And we need to be careful here because it's not merely the presence of discouragement. Discouragement isn't necessarily sin. Uh, God is compassionate toward our struggles and our sadness. He's with us in our suffering. So we want to be careful we're not... If you're ever sad and discouraged, that means you're sinning. But if we are, there's a way of being despondent or entirely given over to discouragement that can reveal a discontent and unquiet heart before God. And Smokey talked about Burroughs as good Old Testament examples. One that we have on this is in 2 Kings 7.2. The prophet Elisha is in a city in Israel that's under siege and they're starving. And the Lord gives him a prophecy for the people that God will provide food the next day. God will will provide food tomorrow. It's it's an amazing prediction. And one of the king's high officials hears this prophecy and says this, if the Lord himself should make uh, windows in heaven, could this thing be? And you know what God does? He he judges this. The the answer is, well, you're not going to see it. You're going to die before you can see this. And that's what happens. (laughs) So God is judging this man's rebellious unbelief. He is so distraught over conditions that he's unable, he's despairing of God's ability to keep his word and to pour out grace. He just thinks there is no hope and he won't even listen to a word of hope from God. So that would be kind of the sinking discouragement that's simply beyond uh, hope of God's promises. That would be a discontent heart. The fourth evidence of an unquiet discontent heart is sinful attempts to find help so um, think of Saul another Old Testament example Saul is on the eve of a great battle and, and where does he go he's 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 stressed it's at the end of 1st Samuel he goes to the witch of Endor he goes to a medium uh, which is clearly forbidden by God's law um, you have other occasions in Israel's history where uh, there's there's danger from other kingdoms and so the kings will do what they'll approach a pagan foreign power and, and they'll make an alliance for their security rather than trusting in the Lord. So anytime we're willing to seek a sinful way out of a problem, that is a sign that we're not content before, before God. Uh, the, here's what Burroughs says about this state. Do you not experience such workings of spirit as this? I Meaning, doesn't your heart sometimes do this? Oh, if I could only be delivered from this affliction in any way, I would not care. He says, your hearts are far from being quiet. If you're in that mode of, like, anything to get out of this, that is not contentment. So those are, those are what quietness of heart is and isn't. Uh, any, any, as we wrap at that point, any thoughts, questions, uh, pushback, anything? All right. Um, the third quality is that it is a gracious frame of spirit, and so each like italicized word, of, as you can see, is what we're what we're focusing. On. This is point C in your in your handout. It's a gracious frame of spirit. What is a frame of spirit? Is a frame like the part of the house, you know, the the, the wood? No. Um, it's it's the condition that permeates our hearts. That's what a frame of spirit is. It's the the. It's not like a mood. Right? Moods come and go they're, they can be very flighty. It is a deeply settled state that's a frame of spirit. Um, Burroughs says this uh, that it is first that, that means it's a grace that spreads itself through the whole soul. So that's the first kind of subpoint on this. It, it pervades every part of your of our inner person. It's our judgment, our thoughts, our will and our affections. they're all satisfied and quiet. So here's an example. That might sound pretty abstract. Let's give an example of what this can look like. Psalm 42, verse 5. Um, This is a great psalm for talking to yourself. This is something that we often ought to do as we struggle in our hearts. To talk to ourselves. So the psalmist is talking to himself in Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So He is dealing with partiality of soul, isn't He? There's a part of Him that's not that's not uh, that, that's committed to hoping in God, and then there's a part of Him that's that's not coming along very easily, right? And so He's divided, and He's talking to Himself. He's trying. And we, if we've walked with the Lord, and if we've struggled with discontentment or all sorts of emotions like this, we we know what this is like talking to ourselves and having to go, come on soul, what, you know, get there <laughs> to where you need to be. But this is a dividedness of his inner person. And um, wrestling with ourselves is a great way to do when we find discontentment of our souls. The point of identifying this is, is not to pile on to the psalmist and saying, oh, he's doing something wrong. Actually, it's a really good response to this problem. It's, it's a recognition that he's in a battle. And this is what we need to do too, when we are divided in our soul, when part of us is accepting what God's doing, but part of us is not, uh, this is just a signal that we need to fight a battle to get our hearts completely right with God, completely um, agreeing with God. So it, it pervades the whole inner inner person. It's not divided. The second aspect of, of this being a frame of spirit is that it is a disposition of the heart. It's it's of the spirit. It's not a reflection of outward circumstances and helps. It's it's a condition of our heart, not of our conditions, or not of our circumstances. And let me give you an example of this. You have a rough day at work and your heart is churning, is upset, and um, you go home and you cheer yourself up with a pint of ice cream. Okay. Now amen. I heard an Amen. By all means enjoy now we gotta be careful here. Okay? by all means enjoy God's gifts enjoy the things he's created for our enjoyment that's that's fine to eat ice cream but just be aware if you just cheered up your disquiet heart with an external thing this is not a gracious frame of spirit um, and to be aware too getting in the habit of cheering ourselves with food and drink and other legitimate enjoyments can be a fast track toward addiction and unhealthy enjoyments and let me just say, uh, at the risk of stepping into a little bit of controversy here, uh, a little corollary on this, that we may have among us differing opinions about the legitimacy of enjoying alcohol, drinking alcohol. But if you feel free to do so, I once heard a very wise warning to not ever drink when you're upset. For this same reason. that uh, The same also, I would say, could be said for all sorts of things like junk food or, or TV that when we lean on outward supports in our discontentment, the potential for idolatry and addiction just skyrockets, doesn't it? And um, look at Paul in prison, Philippians 4. What? How does he deal with plenty, hunger, abundance, and need? Through Christ who strengthens him. We just want to be careful, again, we want to be careful that we're not mistaking um, what isn't really contentment for contentment. It's from the inward springs of spiritual communion with Christ that we find this quiet frame of soul. So just beware. Enjoy God's gifts as your conscience uh, uh, enables, but I would just say beware of how we're using them and whether it's outward helps that are masking discontentment. Uh, Any thoughts on on that point? Yeah, Eric. Quick question on this. How how do we, I mean, fully appreciate and understand the ice cream, alcohol, Mm -hmm. but what about... I'm pursuing some sort of hobby. Yeah. I'm watching television in the evening. I'm reading books. I, you know, I'm the rock climbing, what, fishing, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, these things take on, I mean, I find so much enjoyment and pleasure, and if I'm, I'm, that's how I find my contentment. How, how do we guard against, those are illegitimate those yeah. are good things, many of yeah. them, but how do we, how do we... I hate to use this word because right, Eric, balance. Yeah. <laughs> <Just like that. laughs> yeah, no, that that, Eric, is a great question. And I wrestle with it too, in going, this is a real discernment and wisdom issue that we could go so far on this and say, if you are getting true joy out of a created good, you're sinning, you're being discontent. That we wouldn't say that's not biblical, right? I mean, the Bible says like he gave us grain to make us fat and you know wine to make our hearts merry and oil to make our faces glisten that's a verse out of Psalm 104 so make your faces glisten you know eat that ice cream but uh, but yeah like so there, God is good he's given us a good creation to enjoy but boy the the, the potential for idolatry if, if somehow that becomes it's it's disconnected the enjoyment of it becomes disconnected from God the giver it's a very subtle hard thing it, and it just requires constant prayer and vigilance. When is it just me as a way of worshiping God and enjoying these good things and I can truly enjoy them. It's not like unholy to say, I get a lot of satisfaction out of this. But to slip into the point of this is how I, this is how I um, pacify my disquiet soul that isn't communing with God and, and receiving those this spiritual resources. That's a matter of discernment. I don't know if there's a real clear... I don't know if anyone else have thoughts. Yeah, Stacy and, uh, and and then Blake, yeah. Well, I know,
1: personally, I, I know this is true in others. God has always been faithful to disrupt those times mm-hmm. and expose sin in my own heart, wanting to fight for it again. So, like, if I am reading and I am interrupted by life that also God has given me then um, my attitude towards that disruption mm. exposes how firm I am holding
0: on to God. Very good. So when it's disrupted, your response, maybe an angry response, an impatient response could indicate this is not a way I'm worshiping God and enjoying his gifts. That's a good... Yeah, uh, Blake. Blake.
1: I think being content in the Lord and what He provides is a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. I read in the book "Desiring God" by John Piper mm-hmm. many years ago that if we're if we're putting all our joys and all our hopes on a created thing rather than the, on God, the Creator, then we're enjoying God's gifts without enjoying Him. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's it's kind of a tricky road to walk, but I mm-hmm. think that if we're placing our joy in God and we're rejoicing in Him mm-hmm. because not only of what He gives us, but because who He is, but mm-hmm. then we're on the right track. But if we're mm-hmm. if we're being addicted or if we're being focusing all our joys on what God gives us, then we're not giving any glory to god then something's wrong
0: i think yeah i think that if we're rejoicing in god then we're on the right track yeah if we're enjoying these things for god's sake ultimately that's good the the tricky thing all and there's no formula to this it's a matter of attentiveness prayer um responding to the holy spirit's lead is what what's actually which of those is actually happening in my heart right now and yeah uh brandon Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah
1: uh he, got and he Yeah. Yeah. So got Yeah all Yeah.
0: So there could be all these little signals, like it's kind of drawing me into, into other forms of sin. That's a really really good signal to watch out for. Yeah. So we, there could be a whole other conversation that a very fruitful one to have on this, just sort of this tension between legitimate enjoyment of God's gifts versus leaning in a place where it's it's stunting our contentment. It's becoming a substitute and an idol. So, but yeah, that's a good just a good thing to be aware of as we grow in, in contentment. The third aspect, the last aspect of what it means that it's a frame of spirit is simply that it's habitual in character. It's not a, a passing mood. It's not a feeling in the moment, but it characterizes us. That's what contentment is. Um, the fourth, part D here, the fourth quality is that it is a gracious frame of spirit. That means it's a product of God's grace in Christ. Titus 2, 11 to 14 uses this terminology of God's grace in, in Christ that has, that teaches us God's grace not only forgives us of sin calls us righteous in Christ it teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live sensible and righteous lives so this is the sense of gracious that Burroughs is talking about there are many natural counterfeits to godly contentment out there and we just talked about some of them we, we shouldn't mistake them for the real thing and we'll talk he, he gives uh, three examples of potential counterfeits, things that are not a gracious frame of spirit and, and emphasis on the word gracious, a product of God's grace. First, a gracious frame of spirit isn't when people just have a quiet personality. People just have kind of a more um, subdued constitution. You have some people who's, who are very fiery and and, and uh, passionate and they can be have a very quick temper and things like that. And other people, they're just really mellow. He's saying that being a mellow person by personality is not contentment. And similarly, the second thing it's not is Stoicism. Uh, just having a sturdy resolve. And people can learn to kind of master themselves, um, master themselves by will and effort, and they can be sort of like unflinching. You know, that's kind of the, the, the Stoic way of going through life. Again, if apart from God's grace, that's not true contentment. Uh, the third thing a gracious frame of spirit isn't is it's not obtained by natural reason. And as an example of this, remember last in last week's sermon, if you were here, we heard about um, greed and contentment out of Hebrews 13. And I made the point that the mantra, count your blessings, is, uh, it's fine. I mean, there's some wisdom in it. But in itself, it's kind of a godless thought strategy, right? That If, if, if that kind of thing is your bread and butter, that, that will not produce Christian contentment. That's natural reasoning. The world can do that. The world does that. Well, what's deficient with these counterfeits? Two deficiencies here. One is, um, if you're that kind of person who has either mastered himself to be a stoic, unperturbed by any, uh, any fluctuations or any, um, any problems, or if you're just that, that kind of mellow person that just doesn't really respond to anything, that only, not only makes you unperturbed about bad things, but it can also make you apathetic about good things. That, that that's a signal that this is not God's grace at work. It's not virtuous to be a dull person who doesn't care about anything. In fact, um, it's 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 a denial of reality. It's not godly to just be subdued and not care. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Not Garden of Eden. Boy, there's some interesting <laughs> biblical theology there, actually. But it was actually the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, make a, yeah. Ponder that connection, though. But um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he doing? Is he is he a stoic, unperturbed? He's like, yeah, the cross. I got this. No, he is sweating. He's bleeding. He is in total anguish. This is mature humanity responding with the appropriate emotions in the moment. You ever think of that? Jesus is, is mature, ideal humanity responding with appropriate emotion to the moment he's in. So gr- a, a, a grace-produced contentment is the, is the kind of thing that could respond to true distresses in a way like that. And the second problem with these natural counterfeits is that they don't produce any concern to sanctify God's name in affliction. So if you're just a, a, a subdued personality or if you are just a, a stoic who's learned how to kind of steel yourself against all of the storms of the world... Uh, that won't make you seek the glory of God's name in what you're suffering. Um, It's not enough simply to power through hardships or to just turn off caring about them. Grace rock Christian contentment looks heavenward and says, like Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, uh, 9 and 10, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. So Christian contentment can truly say, your will be done, God. I want you to be glorified. I want you to be honored in this. So it has to be gracious. It has to be a work of the Spirit, not just human constitution. Any any thoughts or, or follow-up about that? If you are of a quiet and mellow personality, none of that was meant to attack you. <laughs> but just maybe you rated yourself a little higher on contentment because of that. You gave yourself a little bit of a higher score and then, as again, you read through this and you go, "Oh, maybe, maybe what I thought was maturity in Christ was is not." Um, there's probably many ways that this going through this is going to help us see. Oh, there's more to it, like Burroughs said. All right, The fifth quality. This is E. Is that it? This the italics is the word freely. It freely submits, and this means uh, just briefly, the contented heart is not coerced by external force comes from the soul, not outward conditions. And there's a little, a little uh, aside on this. This means that we can't force or strong arm other people into being content. Um, what do you do when you're alongside a loved one, uh, a member of your family, a brother or sister in Christ here in the church who is discontent? Well, you can't force them to be content. This is something that happens in the deepest inner place of the soul. We should come alongside them. We should pray for them. We should patiently listen to them, encourage them with the truth of Christ. We can uh, be a part of the process. We should be a part of the process. But only God's grace can produce this free response to him in the heart. Uh, parents, you can't make your kids content. <laughs> that may be something that you know well. Um, it's a matter of patiently praying and, and walking with him and letting the Lord work in the heart. Um, sixth, it submits to God's disposal. We said it freely submits and now we're focusing on submits. This is this is F in your outline. Submits to God's disposal. What is submission? It is putting ourselves beneath God's hand of providence. Uh, it doesn't seek to put ourselves above God. And I love how Burroughs puts this. He says, quote, this is what contentment says, like in your soul. What? Will you be above God? Is this not God's hand? And must your will be regarded more than God's? Oh, under, under, get you under, oh soul. So this is like the internal wrestling, like the like Psalms going, oh my soul. He's saying, get yourself under God. Are you challenging what God has decided to give you? Don't put yourself above God. This is another way of expressing what we talked about. When your complaints are moving into that zone of disquiet and sin, well, part of it is you're 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 not submitted to God. You're, you're trying to put yourself above God's hand. You're trying to evaluate his, his decisions. It is, contentment is freely accepting what God has chosen to do or not to do, to give or to withhold. Uh, it's accepting that not only does God have power, We I think it's easy for us to understand, God has all the power, but it's more than that, it's recognizing he has the sovereignty, he has the right to do what he will. It's his prerogative to do what he will with us. And that's that kind of submission from the heart is what contentment does. Any thoughts about those those last two? Free from the heart. All right. Seventh. This is G in your in your handout. It also it takes pleasure in God's disposal. So we may be able to get ourselves to the place where we can say, "Yes, I can accept." <laughs> That God is sovereign. I can accept that this is what God gave me. But the, the, the true excellence and, and glory of Christian contentment is a soul freedom that goes further than mere submission. It does not just acknowledge God's sovereignty, but it embraces the goodness of what God is doing. It just doesn't say God has the power to do this. It doesn't even just say God has the right to do this. It then says God is good to do this. God is good in what he's giving me. Burroughs says this, Not only do I see that I should be content in this affliction, but I see that there is good in it. I find there is honey in this rock. And that's an allusion to Psalm 81.16. uses that imagery of drawing honey from a rock. So, a content heart acknowledges, again, not only God's sovereignty, but also his goodness in equal measure. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And this means he's full of bounty. He blesses his creatures. Uh, he's not just good in the providences that we naturally like. He's not just good when we're sitting there at the table at Thanksgiving morning with our family and our good food and going, Oh, the Lord is good. He's all, he's good in that. But he's also good in the afflictions and conditions that he ordains that hurt us. And even through tears, even through real pain, even through calling pain and affliction what it is again it's not an unreality it's not a retreat from reality but even in embracing the true pain and hardship of what it is contentment says but god you're good i submit to what you're doing you're good anyone here ever, ever have trouble with that <laughs> any thoughts or questions about that that point this is the one that's like oh yeah smoky um i'm great. we'll crush that um it may not be this far in the
1: book, but he, he never advocates in his different um, things, uh, uh, items that, that he goes through <coughs> that we enjoy the pain itself. Mm-hmm. Like, this is fun. Yeah. Um, or a lack of wisdom or whatever it is it's mm-hmm. more of
0: a disposition of contentment in God it seems like that would you agree with that, that... yeah that's a good distinction and it kind of echoes some of the things we've heard so he's not advocating that we that we somehow like enjoy the pain itself or that we deny the painfulness of pain or the badness of what's bad and that's one thing that's really actually does distinguish Christianity from Stoicism, not to go too far afield, but Stoicism is a, it's, it's a, it's an ancient Greek philosophy that says like the universe is perfectly ordered and everything it's doing must be the very best, no, no, nothing better could be conceived of. And so when like my kids are killed in war, it's a way of just saying like, that's the best, it's not bad, it's the best. And, and you, you like learn to just not be bothered by that. Christianity, there's some truth in that, right? Like, God is sovereign and he's disposing all things for good. But the other half is, it's not an unreal, Stoicism is not reality. It's a retreat from reality. Christianity, biblical Christianity still says, this is truly evil. This is truly grievous. This is truly bad. I'm hurting. And God is, it's, it's injustice. God hates it. But he's still sovereign and he's still good in it. So there is a strange mixture of keeping this together in biblical Christianity that, yeah, what you're describing, Smokey, is very good. We ought not to swing into Stoicism that going, well, everything is fine because it happened. It must be fine because it happened. Everything is just the best universe it could possibly be. So, yeah, not not, um, celebrating evil and not saying it's any less than evil and not denying that we're going through affliction, but still saying God... Somehow you're good, and actually, the way that's resolved is our next point. Uh, actually, to maybe help help bring this alive a little more. Eighth, which is H, we're going deep into the alphabet. Um, it submits and takes pleasure in God's disposal. What God chooses to do, He says, what makes the content person takes ple- take pleasure is God's wisdom, and He provides this inner dialogue of what it might look like for a, a Christian uh, wrestling to be content with God's wisdom. He he says, quote, the Lord knows how to order things better than I. The Lord sees further than I do. I know that the love of God may as well stand with an afflicted condition as with a prosperous condition. End quote. So it's a self-talk of going, I know God's wise. I know that he knows things I don't know. And I know that his love can exist where I'm suffering, just like it can exist where I'm not. So the, the contented heart has to trust in God's inscrutable Mind his wisdom, that that there are, and this is where we distinguish from Stoicism. In God's mind, in God's intent, there are very good, holy, loving reasons for how He's disposing of us, that truly are good, even though He's using evil and He's using hardship to bring about what truly is good. And uh, Tim Keller has written uh, something I'm paraphrasing, but if we knew everything that God knows we would pray for exactly what he is giving us. We would pray for exactly what he does to us. Contentment rests in God's wise disposal of all things. So, so how is it that we can, in our afflictions, we can say not only do you have the power to uh, to ordain everything, not only do you have the sovereign right to do so, not only are you good in doing so, how can that be true when this is truly bad and evil and painful? Because God's wisdom, he is somehow doing Good things I can't even imagine. Yeah, Brandon,
1: yeah. I heard that uh-huh. one probably a bad mood or something. If someone lost their kid, and
0: you're
1: justifying that before God, Thank you thank God for saving them. And so it does that living
0: on that. No. I, no, it sounds like somebody is praying, you know, they lost their kids, and they're, thank God that I, for the time I had with them and for saving them. This, this, uh, they're, they're saying, you've welcomed them into heaven. No, that's not, that's not stoicism. That's Christian contentment, battling through horrific pain and evil. Because it sounds like, I mean, it's just a very out of context thing, but it sounds like there's an acknowledgement of this is really bad. So a stoic says, I guess that was good. I guess that was a good thing. And so you just have to kind of emotionally detach yourself to be able to live that way, right? You just can't care about anything very much. Uh, that's actually a, a mature Christian response to, to to suffering, yeah. Finding things to thank God for, even amid what's truly loss and yeah and pain. Any other thoughts? I know this stuff gets very personal and challenging, but yeah, yeah, Garrett. Yeah, a little less on... Uh... Mm-hmm. It's not. We talked about it's not laziness apathy.
1: Mm-hmm. It's not those things. Like how, where is the harmony of like the proverb thirty one of building businesses? Yeah. And creating value from twelve
0: and say all the action verses. Yeah. What you do where is the? It's the content is apathy. Um, but where is the? How are you the ambitious and? Yeah. At the same time? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. How to be ambitious and content? I would say back to the point of a disquiet heart isn't or, or a quiet heart doesn't mean that we're not taking steps to better our condition and and that would be a good example you're kind of expanding i think on that point of the bible commends hard work proactive work proactive steps whether romans 12 is sort of like the in our midst the way we love one another the way we live as a body but there's other in the commercial sphere uh proverbs, all throughout proverbs like be like that ant you know go out and get that harvest to go out and be be we could say ambitious if we're defining it right, not like for a pride. But be ambitious about, uh, proactive about working. Yeah, the Bible commends that. We, we should be very active. But I think there's a sense of keeping in mind at the same time that everything comes from God's hand. And say, I'm, I'm trying to be that ant. And I, I did everything right. I set myself up right. I made the, the right moves. I tried to be diligent. And some things fall apart for me. And I'm not going to have that harvest stored up for the winter that I thought I was going to have. This is where contentment can say, "Okay, God, you know best." Um, so I didn't do all that work, promising myself things God doesn't promise me, but I still did it, trusting God. Like this is going to be the means that God uses to provide for me. Huh. Yeah, all these things bring up really just good heart, you know, heart questions. There's a lot of complexity here, but these are these are the things of life, right? So I don't know if that's an answer or whatever, but it's a good just tension to think about. The Bible does commend. Being proactive about work and plans and all that. Yeah, Wilson. Uh, just a simple mind exercise, but life exercise too, and wrestling with the question that Garrett brought up was I think the church as a body can be underappreciated at times when it comes to stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It's just simply going to someone that you know and love, and someone that knows and loves you, and just asking them a question like this is what I'm thinking and wanting to do. What what do you think? Yeah, and just having that openness to another spirit and wealth brother or sister that loves the Lord and wants the best for you, um, sometimes it can be hard to hear what they might have to say. Uh, but if they knew you and loved you and cared for you, I think that that could be a huge uh, yeah resource. So there could be yeah, you bring it to a brother or sister to get advice because there there can be ways of hustling that are that are actually the outworking of greed and and. So, you know, there is a strain of that in the world. Like, go out and do all these, like, a, a, ambitious business ventures. And the heart behind that is you've got to hurry up and get rich and have a nice life. You know, so, yeah, maybe a brother or sister could just help you think through your 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 reasoning and your motivations and help help sift that out for you. What's the, the line between godly diligence and proactive labor versus um, a discontent or greedy heart that's at work? Yeah, that's a great point. And prayer, just praying for God to to show you if there's sin in your motives. Um, Ninth, which is I, this is the last one, it does this in every condition. So, the all-wise, sovereign, good God is the one who picks out our afflictions. He picks out not only which ones we'll deal with, but their quality, their duration, their mixture. And so there are three different aspects to consider in this idea of this through every condition. And that's language right out of Paul, right, that we saw in Philippians 4, in any and every circumstance. Well, the first aspect to consider is that it is every sort of affliction, every kind. And uh, this is a convicting thought exercise Burroughs has for us. He says, if we were to go around and ask, uh, many of us, if we were asked, would you submit yourself to God's disposal in whatever condition he might place you? We would quickly say, yes, of course. I'll submit myself gladly to any condition that he... Puts me in. We'll affirm that in general. But then, what about the specific conditions? Haven't we all done things like this to say, God, anything but that? Don't afflict my kids. Afflict my health instead. Don't afflict my marriage. Afflict my business instead. Like we we think that we are ready to submit freely and graciously to you know to God's disposal. But then He afflicts us in one way, and we go, not that way. I was I didn't want that kind of affliction. I would prefer. This other kind, Paul says, any and every circumstance. Remember, God's wise; nothing is on accident. The second, uh, the second aspect of this is the time and duration of affliction. There might be certain conditions we accept at first, and early on we 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 heroically walk in that that road of Christian contentment, accepting, God, you're sovereign, you're wise, I'll trust you. But then it just drags on, and uh, it goes on, and and um. It can be a different story. Uh, our condition can be, I love this picture, this other Old Testament picture. It can be like Noah in the ark. Um, Listen to Burroughs talking about Noah in the ark. Though we be shut up in the great afflictions, and we may think of this and that and the other means to come out of that affliction, yet till God opens the door, we should be willing to stay. God has put us in, and God will take us out. Just imagine Noah and his family in the ark. Like God put him in the ark. He shut the door. He put him in this really hard situation. I mean, they had a better time than everyone else, but <laughs> he, he put him in a re- really tough situation, and they're waiting how long? Until he decides the floods abate and the doors open. And that's a, a beautiful picture of God in his disposal of our lives. We go, I'm here until God opens the door and changes it. That doesn't mean we don't take steps to improve our condition, but Insofar as it's clear, this is what God has ordained for us. We, we rest on his timing. And the third aspect of this is every variety of condition. Every variety. Sometimes there is a special hardship in the cumulative, relentless way that our different afflictions line up, one after the other, after the other. And it's every kind of thing. It's like every realm of life gets hit. And we go, I could take one of these, I could take two of these. But it's just one after the other. And Burroughs says, it is very rarely that one affliction comes alone. It often does happen where it piles up. It's like Job. We don't all have quite that experience, intensity of Job. But there's that piling up of, I can't take the variety of all these things together. And it may feel to us random and chaotic, but remember, it is the product of God's wisdom. Contentment can be... Submitted to God's wise disposal, even of the way he mixes and combines trials that he ordains for us. So, in conclusion, um, we have seen that Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And I trust that by now we're all saying with Burroughs, Lord, I see that there is more to Christian contentment than I thought there was. And I have been very far from learning this lesson. Amen. I, I can say. But let me at least, as we uh, close today and, and head into the rest of our journey, let me help put some wind in your sails here. Um, because yes, God, I trust, has exposed sin in our hearts. But why has he done so? Well, he we always have to receive this kind of teaching and interpret it through the gospel of Christ. So. I want to expand on a word that Burroughs didn't expand on necessarily in his definition and that is the word fatherly. That God is disposing of us in a fatherly way. And why is he our father? Because through the gospel, through Christ, he has adopted us into his family through his beloved son. Uh, He sent Jesus to take the wrath of God for us so that we can be forgiven and welcomed into his family as sons and daughters. And we can call him our father. So, lest we think of uh, contentment is a legalistic hoop to jump through. Just this thing to grit our teeth and get through. Consider adoption. Consider the fact that God is our Father. And from this perspective, contentment is really can be summed up It's nothing more than resting in God's fatherly care. That's really what contentment is at the end of the day. It's resting in God's fatherly care. There are many aspects to it. There are many challenges to it. There's many ways that sin uh, would threaten it. And there are many painful lessons to learn. But it's only hard because we're not resting. That's why contentment is such a challenge to us. Because we're not resting. God's not calling us to to, to take a burden on ourselves. He's calling us to rest in his fatherly care. And so he's offering us the freedom of contentment in Christ. And that's where we're going to grow together by God's grace. So any parting uh, thoughts or questions before? Yeah, Blake. Oh, this is food for thought.
1: I was thinking when you were teaching. Uh, I think it's good to remember that that if we could control or predict the afflictions that come, we wouldn't need the Lord's Son We yeah. wouldn't need him at all. So I think even though all the afflictions that come to us are usually a surprise mm-hmm. and unpleasant, the Lord is wise in everything or he ordains. But he's also loving everything he does. So I think it's good to remember that the Lord knows what he's doing, even though we may not expect afflictions and unpleasant surprises, but God is faithful to us because of what Christ did on the cross. Mm -hmm. And we're under his care, under his guidance, and he's trustworthy.
0: Yeah, amen. A lot of good, good, good things. God's trustworthy. Um, he's teaching us dependence, which is a good in itself. That's a, that's a good uh, thing to think about our, our trials as well. So yeah, appreciate that. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your, your fatherly, wise, loving disposal of all things in our lives. We confess that you're sovereign and we thank you that in Christ you've brought us to a place of reconciliation with you where we know that everything that you ordain is for our eternal good. But we struggle to accept that as we walk through the difficult things of this life. And uh, you know, in each of us, the areas where we struggle with contentment. You know how we're doing. You know where the pressure points are. And Father, we thank you that you're shepherding us toward uh, the joy and freedom of resting in you. We pray that you would do that in this series, that you'd work in all of our souls to bring us to this mature place of, of contentment. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.